I think a lot of people, and perhaps this is part of the the attraction of what has been called the New Age movement and so on, it's it's sort of a spirituality without the cross. You know, the the being self-made and these sorts of things. And it, it, at the end of the day, it just it kind of ignores the reality of human experience about our just we just keep falling down the more we try to depend upon ourselves and and most importantly it ignores the the witness of scripture that jesus came to save sinners you're searching for the meaning of life on what certainties should we build our lives and the life of the community to which we belong? I have come to know among you nothing but Christ and Him crucified. What matters is that I believe it, or rather know, not that I believe it, but that I believe it. We have hope. Someone who's alive today could be a saint tomorrow. That makes sense. That's why Jesus came on earth. In order to set them free with the truth of the gospel. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Upfront with the Archbishop. The goal of Upfront is to bridge the gap between the hierarchy and the faithful by discussing the truth, beauty, and challenges of our Catholic faith. My name is Jenny Conley, your host, and as per usual, I am here with Archbishop Smith. Hello again, Jenny. Hello. So today we're discussing, um, is it your favorite saint? Is St. Augustine your favorite saint? Would He'd you say one that? Of them. Yeah. yeah, one of your... Yeah. Your top guys? <laughs> oh, yeah. He, he's up there. He's up there for the whole church, obviously. That's true. But, but Augustine, he's uh, just remarkable. Not what a own, beauty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, my, not, not my only favorite. There are others, of course. But he's uh, he's so instrumental in the, the the history of Catholic thought, Christian thought, yeah. that, that uh, we, we all should encounter St. Augustine at one point or another. No kidding. And then maybe we'll ha- have a little bit of discussion of some of the the heretics that kind of yeah. were counterparts to him oh, in his okay. story. So St. Augustine, who is also known as St. Augustine of Hippo, was a bishop of Hippo, which is modern-day Algeria, in the 4th and 5th century. And he's one of the most significant Christian thinkers after St. Paul. He was a convert to Christianity, and his numerous written works, the most important of which are the Confessions and the City of God, these books shaped the practice of biblical studies going forward in Christianity and helped lay the foundation for much of medieval and modern Christian thought. So St. Augustine, he is a doctor of the church, for is sure. he not? Yes, yeah. he is. What defines a doctor of the church? Is it an honorary title or is there some no, particular not at criteria? All. Not at all. Doctor from Latin is teacher. Yeah. So um, the church, as she um, assesses the life of the saints, uh, in her history, will come to an awareness based upon the ongoing influence that that the teaching, the writings of a particular individual have had. Will will say, well, this this is someone whose 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 teaching, whose writings, whose books are really worthy of consideration, worthy of study. These, if we study the the work, the life of this individual, it will. The, the individual, the one who is doing the studying, can rest assured that they are getting a worthy guide in this person okay. in the life of faith. So it's not a title that is bestowed uh, lightly. lightly by any stretch. Um, is there a process? Sure, there would be. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't know what the actual details of the process are, but yeah. the, the, um, the the church would generally want to look at what has been the abiding influence of this individual on the life. On, on the life of the people of God, the life of the church as a whole, and over a period of time, and say, okay, this this is someone worthy of our trust. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite one of 
Augustine's published works? Oh, it would have to be the Confessions. The Confessions, yeah. You know, really. If, yeah. <laughs> uh, if anybody hasn't read the Confessions, they've got to read the Confessions. Okay. Because uh, as, you, as you do, you're going to find yourself in it. That's a declaration from the Archbishop, there folks. There it is. You there must there read it. it is. The but Confessions. You know, there's, there's a principle at work here, which I think uh, could be helpful. When you read the Confessions of Augustine, it is so brutally honest. Yeah. And so thoroughly honest. It is just this complete, unmasked, unqualified self-examination and confession before God of his of his humanity, his weakness, his sin, his need for God. So it it is a deeply, deeply personal testimony on the part of Augustine. Yeah, it's but, a treat. But, yeah. but the point here though is that what is most deeply personal is most universal, mm-hmm. given the the fundamental solidarity among all human beings. And so when someone delves down so deeply and is able to give expression to what really is their deepest personal reality, they're actually expressing what is also universal among all of humanity. So that's what I mean by saying when you read the Confessions, mm-hmm. you're going to find yourself in it, if you yourself are as honest with yourself as he was as with he himself. Is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've only read um, a handful of excerpts from the Confessions, um, but I have it on my desk. I want to read it because I not only do I love his style of writing, but when the parts I've read of the Confessions, they almost remind me of a songwriter in the sense that it's rare to read one of the doctors of the church or one of the saints, especially from far in the past, where they get into the very minute details of their life. Mm. Like he speaks about relationships and feelings he had and thoughts he had and disagreements he had with friends in a way that's so specific it's yeah it's like a songwriter recounting a memory in as much vivid detail as possible so it's kind of a treat to feel that immersed as if he was kind of creating material for a movie of his life he Mm -hmm. wanted to be not broad strokes but actually really deep into the detail so I found that it made it especially intriguing just even on a human level that you could see the very much the humanity of Augustine because he gets into the tiny little details with his mother or his his girlfriend or his son, those kind of things. It's interesting. But, but what's also, I think, important to notice is is the why. Like, Why is he able to be so com- complete in his self-knowledge? Right. And it's, it's because he encountered Jesus Christ, the light. Oh. It's in the light that Christ is. Mm-hmm. And, and in the light of the love that Christ brings to Augustine, brings to each individual, that, that he, like all of us, can start to see their lives in their true light. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and God, who, who made us, who made us through Christ, knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so the closer we draw to the light, the closer we draw to the person of Jesus Christ, the more we are enlightened and see ourselves truthfully, and see ourselves fully, holy. And so Augustine, who had come to that encounter with Christ and had that light just shine a flash upon him, as he says also in the Confessions, was in that flash of the brilliant light of God's love, able to see himself fully, not all of which was a happy discovery, Mm -hmm. right? Because he'll often say, how thoroughly ashamed he is of himself now that he sees himself truthfully in the light of Christ's love for him. 
Um, but at the same time, it, it, it's not a despairing kind of a shame. It's a shame that is still buoyed by hope because he knows that he has been touched, transformed, healed, carried forward, and called by the one who, has, who loves him beyond all measure. Mm-hmm. How old were you when you first read the Confessions? Oh, I can't remember. I can't remember. The exact day. The exact day the exact and the day hour. And how many months uh, into that particular you know, age? Why <laughs> is it that you can't remember these things, Your Grace? You know, you're obviously growing old. Oh, my right? God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. I don't know. I was, it was quite young. And I'd, I'd like, uh, in fact, from this conversation, I'm tempted to, that's a good temptation, to yeah. go back and, and reread the confessions. They bear continual, repetitive reading do you have a same copy like the copy you originally wrote and have highlighted yeah yeah i do yeah do you highlight in books are you one of the not too much not too much every now and then i might uh indicate something but i don't do that too too often yeah it's kind of controversial whether i do that to all my favorite books but i have some friends that feel like i've desecrated something by using highlighters and annotating well whatever works for the individual yeah for sure that's right i uh um if something marks me as I read it, it stays. Mm-hmm. It stays within my heart, within my mind. So, yeah. Is there a particular chapter in Augustine's life that uh, intrigued you particularly or does intrigue you? You know what? There's not, a, not so much a chapter but a phrase, mm. which really, I think, it's become my daily prayer now that I think of it. Um, in the Latin it goes, da quad jubes, Jube quod vis. Literally, um, da, da quod jubes, give what you command. And then, hmm. jube quod vis, command what you want. More oh. broadly translated is, give me the grace to do what you command and command me to do what you will. Okay. A total, total surrender uh, to God's will. And a total surrender to the truth that we cannot live apart from grace. Mm-hmm. So yes, Lord, command me to do what you will, but give me the grace to do what you're commanding. Mm-hmm. We we live, and this this is this is central to the teaching of Augustine. He is in the church called the doc. You, you mentioned him him earlier as a doctor of the church, the doctor of grace. They'll often talk about Augustine as the doctor mm-hmm. of grace because uh, he would continually insist that we cannot live apart from the gifts of God. Mm-hmm. And I think what we have in Augustine and in his own life and in his teaching, a personification and a beautiful uh, um, exemplification and a beautiful articulation of what Jesus says in the Gospel of John, apart from me, you can do nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Mm-hmm. Right? And Augustine discovered that truth and continued to insist upon it. We live solely from grace are carried solely by grace and apart from that we're, we, we don't exist and we cannot accomplish things but in Christ we can accomplish all things do you think that Augustine ever emphasized grace so much that he sometimes quote unquote forgot about free will and personal responsibility no, no the opposite because uh, he was very much involved in the debates of his days around that, that relationship between grace and human freedom yeah, and uh, you know some of the of his interlocutors and those with whom he debated of the day um, would 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 say in order to preserve human freedom, qua freedom, uh, 
um, there, there needs to be at least a moment in which I'm able to act on my own. Right? And Augustine said, no, 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 there is no such moment. And he would, he would uh, refer to the teachings of St. Paul who would say that, you know, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Right? Mm-hmm. Our liberty, genuinely given by God, but c- corrupted from the reality of sin, needed to be liberated to be itself. So, set free, our, our, our freedom liberated in order to be exercised. Grace always goes before. The technical term is prevenient grace coming before. Prevenient, prevenient grace. grace. Yeah. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Hmm. It would, some of the, the, the people of the day, like Pelagius, that would, that would drive him crazy because Pelagius would, would just insist so, so much on human freedom. And and in the and even in, in, in relationship with God, if, if if we are to be saved, we must freely assent to the invitation that has come to us in the gospel. And that needs to be something that we do entirely on our own. And Augustine was said, No, no, no. We can't even take the first step. Some people would try to mitigate that by saying, mm-hmm. Well, at least maybe that first step towards God needs to be taken solely without the help of grace, and then God will come in afterwards, which the church has since called semi Pelagianism. Um, Augustine said, no, all depends at all moments upon the grace of God. Mm. Yeah, Pelagius, he was, uh, I mean, retros- well, he was, he was condemned as a heretic at the time, um, but he, he was a, a famous kind of counterpart to Augustine. And I, I believe they had interaction, uh, interactions and they wrote, I think they wrote some texts against one another. Certainly Augustine wrote a response to Pelagius, Pelagius's ideas. My understanding is that Pelagius was known for basically really emphasizing free will, that mm-hmm. it's all, it's salvation is found within human willpower basically. And that there is no original sin. Humans are fundamentally good they're they're pure babies don't need to be baptized because they're just they're white as snow there's no touch of concupiscence do you think that's an accurate recap of who pelagius was i think that that's pretty good yeah and what's interesting is how often that gets repeated through history and i've noticed that pope francis himself is continually warning against the neo-pelagianism of our day that sense that that we can save ourselves yeah um we cannot if we can save ourselves, we don't need a savior. We don't need Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Right? All depends on him and upon his grace. Hi, everybody. Matthew here. I just want to take a quick moment to tell you about an exciting new series we're launching through Upfront with the Archbishop next week. It's called Embrace Limit. And it's a series, a three-part series, where his grace looks at the many different parts of being a Catholic that can sometimes seem to limit our freedom and therefore quote-unquote, limit our happiness. Now, we've got three parts to this. The first part being released next week is on the church's sexual teachings. The second part is on being tethered to your vocation, a lifelong vocation. And lastly, part three, we're going to look at pleasure in the context of entertainment and food. So just wanted to give you guys a heads up that that series is starting next week, and we're super excited to share it with you. Lots of great wisdom from his grace and lots of great questions. So please stay tuned for that. Thank you. Do you think that with Augustine, um, he had this really keen sense of sin, 
Uh, and when you read, I mean, I've only read the excerpts and you've read the whole thing, but he, he really talks about his sinful life. Late have I loved you. And he really is mourning. You have this sense of his sorrow over his sins, even years, decades after the sins have passed. He just carries the sorrow for his sins. Do you think that kind of the the particular hedonism and distinct sense of immorality that characterized his life, do you think his personal story led him to have this big emphasis on needing to depend on grace. Do you know what I mean? Like, do you think that that's why he was so strong on that point because of his own journey? Because not everyone has the particularly destructive behaviors that Augustine has in their story, but he, yeah, he had a pretty, I guess, by Christian standards, a wild life before coming to the Oh, Lord. he certainly did. He had a mistress and a child by the mistress and, and, um, he had he had a, a tumultuous tumultuous journey, yeah. But but I guess the lesson in that uh, for all of us is, and it's often captured in that phrase. We we say it often. There's no saint without a past, and there's no sinner without a future. Right. Yeah. So look at the great great saints of the church, Saint Augustine being one. Look at Saint Peter; he denied the Lord. Look at Saint Paul; he persecuted the church. Right? Mm. They can all look back. And and it's reflected in, in even in scripture too. They can look back with with profound profound sorrow at what had happened. But I think it's important in anybody's life when they're grappling with a sinful past to distinguish the sorrow that they're experiencing and why. Uh, and Saint Paul makes that distinction too in his writings, where he distinguishes between a worldly remorse and a remorse that ultimately has its source in God and in God's grace. And so the worldly remorse uh, has that sense of, oh my gosh, embarrassment and shame, look at what I did, and which ultimately becomes an act of pride in and of itself. But the right. salvific kind of remorse is, look, I can't ever forget where I've been but where I am also now, and that's all because of the goodness of God. So that's a... That's a, that's an abiding sadness that at the same time is is carried and diminished by joy at the salvation that has come into my life, mm-hmm. um, and that orients me to the future. It doesn't keep me wallowing in the past, which would be an act of pride, but in humility, acknowledging that yes, yeah, I got I got to admit that I'm a sinner, and I am very ashamed of what I've done. Yet, that's not the final word. The final word is mercy. The final word is love. And therefore, you know, I, I need to be aware of my weakness and my potential to fall back into sin, certainly. But what really ought to be carrying my life is the joy that comes from knowing that I have been touched by the Savior and I'm being carried forward towards the mm-hmm. towards the fullness of salvation. Yeah, and it seems, yeah, and kind of alluding to what I I'd referred to earlier, with Augustine's past, especially he's known for speaking a lot about the the pain and the disorder that came from his sexual relationships, his relationship with women and having a child outside of wedlock, not condemning the child, but just kind of acknowledging the, the sorrow that came out of this um, disordered relationship with sexuality. I, I, at least that's what I associated with him speaking very um, clearly about that. Um, and so he has this keen awareness of his own capacity for sin, which 
I suppose it's accurate to say that, yeah, that's partly maybe why he was so keen to talk about grace. And I need grace because I couldn't, it was impossible. Like I couldn't make any good come out of this life without the Lord. Right. And I wish we would all learn that lesson. Yeah. And keep reminding ourselves of it. You know, we, we are fully dependent upon the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. But then, yeah. But then in the case of Pelagius, which I find interesting considering different ideas that are in modern culture, the idea that there's no original sin. It's a kind of appealing worldview, to be honest, the idea that human beings are inherently good. They're just, they're these pure in individuals, creatures that come onto earth and then they get stained by the world and by their choices, right? Like there is something kind of appealing about that. It, it kind of seems to resonate with the truth, the fact that babies are so precious and they're so good and then bad things happen and you start sinning. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, but it's difficult to explain the cross in all of that. Okay. Right? You know, so so I think a lot of people, and perhaps this is part of the, the attraction of what has been called the New Age movement and so on, it's, it's sort of a spirituality without the cross. Yeah. You know, the, the being self-made and these sorts of things. And it, it, At the end of the day, it just it kind of ignores the reality of human experience about our we just keep falling down the more we try to depend upon ourselves. And and most importantly, it ignores the, the witness of Scripture that Jesus came to save sinners. And there are we are all, we are all sinners. And in fact, the church's doctrine on original sin, if I can put it that way, is, is a derivative doctrine. It derives from the teaching with St. Paul in Romans that Christ came to save everyone. Mm-hmm. Therefore, everyone is sinful. Mm. And so reading from that basis, you read back into the Old Testament and understand more deeply what is being said in Genesis with that original fall. Yes, of course, we are created good. God creates good things. Uh, and And included in that being created good was the gift of freedom so that we could, in freedom, respond to God's offer of love. Mm-hmm. It, that needs to be a free act. And yet, from the beginning, that freedom was abused, all right, and, and, and led to that separation from God, and the humanity has been living with the collateral effects of that down, down through the generations, such that we needed someone to come back and, and uh, liberate our liberty, mm-hmm. so that once again, freely, buoyed by grace, we can give our response to God who who has loved us first. And in that light, we can also say, well, yes, yes, uh, we are good, essentially good because God's creation, but because of the abiding effects of original sin, that, 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 uh, that the traumatic effects that have come down through the, the generations, we, our, our goodness is a fragile one, right? And can easily be broken. And we see this repeated time and time mm-hmm. again. Uh, in our own lives. So because of the fragility of that goodness, we, we continue to need to be buoyed by the grace of God. Is that what original sin is? Would it be accurate to characterize original sin as spiritual generational trauma? Well, you know, I've been thinking about that an awful lot in the light of, and I've, said, I've spoken about this uh, a few times lately in the wake of uh, the walking together that we've been doing with indigenous peoples. And what I've been thinking of is, is their experience of intergenerational trauma 
I think can give us some insights, important insights into what the church has always said about the abiding effects of original sin. So mm. with respect to intergenerational trauma that as the indigenous peoples have experienced, often it's rooted in that original sin, if I can put it that way, of the residential school legacy, that original sin, that original wound mm. of family separation, children separated from their parents, a very, very deep wound, which now we see, looking back, has these effects down through the subsequent generations. Mm -hmm. That wound is so deep. Well, when we talk about original sin, it's an act of separation. Because of our turning away from God, it's a separation from the Father. And when we talk about the abiding effects of original sin, the technical term concupiscence, we could perhaps think about it as you know, in theological terms, as that intergenerational trauma that comes from separation from the Father. That even when, so in the indigenous context, even when family life is restored, please God it is, they're still living with the effects of the trauma that continue, that need continued attention and continued healing. So even when, through baptism, that original separation from the Father is healed, there are still those abiding Effects the the lingering woundedness uh, that needs continual attention and care, and that's that's the work of grace that comes to us through the sacraments. It's interesting. This is I was going to say it's a little off topic, but what the heck? This is <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about the relationship between trauma and sin, and the idea that I've heard it proposed that there's some factions of Christianity that are almost getting to the point theologically where they would propose that there's no such thing as sin, that all sin is just trauma in some way, right? Because hurt people hurt, right? That idea of if you are doing something wrong, it's probably coming from a space of something that's broken in you, right? And we didn't break ourselves in a lot of cases. Um, And yet the church, the Catholic church, Christianity emphasizes no sin is very real, right? There, very real, and, of and course. Original sin exists. There's a yep. mark on us that happens as soon as we're conceived, right? Do you have any thoughts on that? Like the really, the idea of absolving sin, it's and it's probably like with good intentions this idea, but absolving sin with the idea that it's all it's all trauma. That's what it is. Well, I think we need to be careful about. Um, you know, and make the, the clear distinction between the, the wrongful act itself and one's personal culpability for it. Yeah. So um, stealing is wrong. It's wrong. You ought not to steal. Yeah. Uh, what's going on in a person's life that caused them to steal? Mm-hmm. Well, maybe they're a drug addict. Yeah. And they are so stoned on the drugs that there's actually no possibility of freedom in their life. Right. Right. And, and so they're acting as uh, out of the impact of the drug mm-hmm. rather than out of any personal freedom. So mm-hmm. it's still a wrong act. But looking at what might have caused the person to do it helps us to give it a sense of the culpability. So by extension, someone may do something that's wrong and it needs to be named as wrong, but perhaps there's been such traumatic events in their lives that at a particular moment they're really not acting freely when they commit the act. And that's, that, that helps us to maybe give a, a gentle, merciful assessment of their personal capability. But we cannot, on the basis of those distinctions, take that further step and say the act itself was not wrong. There is no sin. 
And there is, and we need to name it. My understanding is that even if you're not culpable, even if you're not personally responsible because maybe you're inebriated or something like that, the sin is still hurting you. Like even if <laughs> you didn't mean to do it, it Absolutely. still hurts you yeah, objectively. We, we will live um, the painful effects of the of the sinful decisions that we make or the sinful acts that we take, even if perhaps not undertaken in freedom. Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Matthew. Well, and this kind of connects to a question that I have in my head. One of the maybe modern day criticisms of St. Augustine is uh, the idea of massa damnata, uh, like the, the damnation of the masses that he... Um, I'm not, I'm not sure how much he put forward, but it, it's associated with St. Augustine. And nowadays, within the last like 100 years, 150 years of the church, there's been more reflection on that. What are your, what are your thoughts in regards to that? Because it connects to culpability. I think that is one area where um, Augustine is probably justly challenged in his teaching because as he was grappling with this. Right, the, and maybe, maybe define what it is first. So there's, the, there's this question of, Yes, the, the, the world needs a Savior, and the world needs Jesus Christ, and we cannot be saved apart from Jesus Christ. There's only one name under heaven by which we can be saved. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's clear. If we, if we deny that, we are no longer Christian. Um, and so Augustine really, really grappled with that. You know, um, is, 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 if, if someone has not come to know Jesus Christ and has not been baptized— Will they therefore be damned? And he couldn't really get himself beyond the conclusion that if they haven't encountered Christ, there there is no salvation for them. Where where we are today with that though is is, is understanding that maybe Augustine didn't grapple sufficiently with the other teaching in Scripture that God wills all people to be saved. Right? That too is is is. God's plan, God's purpose, which is not to be thwarted. So how do the two come together? And what the church would say today is, there is no salvation apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, period. However, it's also possible that that very same grace of the Paschal Mystery can reach people today, because of God's universal salvific will, in ways that are not known to the church in ways that perhaps are outside uh, the reach of the church and the reach of her sacraments, because God wills all people to be saved. So there is the norm. Salvation is by Jesus, and that norm is, is, is by baptism. But if people, through no fault of their own, have not come to know Jesus, have not been baptized, then we also must, in humility, recognize that God, because he wills so much to save people, will reach them in ways... Of, by the working of the Holy Spirit in ways that are not known to the church. And I guess that phrase, by no fault of their own, have they not been exposed to the church or they haven't encountered Jesus, that'd be the operative phrase. Mm-hmm. That's it. Right. And to clarify, that's not like a universalist position either. It's more of a hope, uh, right? It's, it's oh, like a clarifying It's hope, always yeah. a hope. Yeah. It always is a hope, for sure. Yeah, because I suppose some people, well, it could be a concern that, oh, well, if the church, if people can be saved without directly well, without being baptized, for instance, or without knowing Jesus um, or never having gone to confession, then what's the big deal with the sacraments and Jesus? But I, I guess the response to that would be that, again, it's not to say that grace is not... Well, well yeah. <laughs> so, so, so God wills all people to be saved, but, but, but by the same scripture passage, it said that God wants all people to come to know the truth. Right. Right. 
Well, the truth is Jesus Christ. So the church retains always this responsibility to announce the truth. And if I have come to know the truth and accept the truth in my life of the centrality, well, the necessity of Jesus and the centrality of his church and the, the indispensability of the sacraments, especially the sacrament of baptism, and yet in full knowledge at some point turn away from that and reject it, well, then I'm in a very, very precarious situation. Mm-hmm. No, no, salvation's not automatic. You know, God, God wills, but God touches the heart. God calls forth an awakening of the conscience, mm-hmm. right? That 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 in itself is always the working of the Paschal mystery, summoning the person, sometimes even in ways they're not aware, to die to self and to live for others. Mm-hmm. You know, through a, a a well-informed and well-tuned conscience that 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 examines self that takes out of oneself towards the other. There in itself we can see the dynamic of grace. And there, because we see the dynamic of grace, gives that that's what gives birth, as you say, Matthew, to the hope. You know, we, we cannot speak of salvation as automatic, and we cannot, as church, as individuals, you know, definitively say that so-and-so is saved. That's all in the mystery of God. But we do, as a people, because of this universal saving will of God, the universal embrace of his love, do live in the hope of that salvation. What would you ask Augustine if you if you were when you do meet him someday, probably in eternity? Um, but that's my hope. That's the hope. <laughs> Hopefully true. not soon, though. The the reason reason yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah. What would you ask him? What are, when you read the confessions, you've read his other works. What are one or two questions that have kind of highlighted themselves in your brain, whether it's about his theology or about his life? I, I guess I'd say to Augustine. What do you say now? All right. So right. in his in his life, right, his earthly existence, his relationship with God, he was touched, transformed, he wrote, he taught, and everything else. Um, but in the light now of eternity, in the light of living in the communion of the Holy Trinity, what would you say? Mm. Would you say Would you say anything differently? Would you say anything different? You know, the um, I'd, I'd be curious about that. You know what. Uh, it, it was Thomas Aquinas, right, that towards the end of his life, after all that he wrote, all his yeah. brilliance, had that encounter with God at the end of his life. He said, gosh, it's like all straw yeah. in the light of what I see now as the truth. That's the kind of thing I'd, I'd like to talk to the, to the saints about. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what, do you, what would you say now? You it's say? not that we can't trust what we do have in front of us. Yeah. We do trust it because the church has told us to trust it. Mm-hmm. But what would you say now? I know another thing that's popped up in my brain with Augustine's story is that part of his conversion story, and he had a conversion pretty late, right? It was in his 50s, I want to say, right? Like oh, 50s. gosh, I better double check. I think it might have been earlier than that. Okay. But a little, like he lived quite a bit of life already because he does talk about late have I loved you. I mean, he's right. famous for that, right? Yep. Um, so it wasn't exactly in his youth or what we would define youth as. Um and I remember that he had an encounter with the preaching of St. Ambrose, who is another doctor of the church. And he talks about how that was instrumental in his conversion. And I don't know the details of, the, of that interaction or that encounter, but what I thought was interesting was that Augustine at the time, I, I don't think he had had a full, full conversion when he encountered St. Ambrose preaching in uh, somewhere in Italy. and Milan. Milan, yeah, because he was Saint Ambrose. He was a wasn't he a Roman governor that became a bishop. Of Milan. A bishop. Yeah, wow. Can't you see his teeth? 
today? You can go see his teeth. St. Ambrose? Uh, St. Ambrose. I think his skull. You can see like Yeah, his, yeah. His, his uh, thanks for the reminder. Teeth. I visited Milan and I was able to get to the... Now, you know, like I got to the... My luck. I got to the cathedral in Milan one time and yeah. because that's where Ambrose baptized Augustine, when you think of it, right? Oh. And I said, but I get to the church... There's yeah, right across the entrance down into the baptistry, closed for repairs. I thought, oh, oh, my luck. But anyway, I was able to get yes to the crypt, and uh, yeah, I remember seeing that of Ambrose. Yeah. That's a that's an odd quirk of Catholicism. It's just like the the retention of these particular body parts. Like, I, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, for it's never struck me as particularly weird because I've grown up Catholic, so it was like, yeah, Saint Ignatius's hand or something. But it is quite a little. <laughs> Like one might say, a quirk of our, our tradition, eh? But but it's kind of a a beautiful thing. I I went um, one of the one of the trips that I took when I was in Italy was to the town of Pavia, where Augustine's remains are kept oh. beneath the altar in the church there. And I remember I uh, arrived just before noon, and, and noon is the time when they close the churches for lunch and <laughs> siesta. So I got there a little after uh, a little after eleven thirty, I think, and so they're getting ready to uh, close the church. So I went to the local Augustinian priest and introduced myself as a priest. I said, "You know what? I'd love to be able to say mass at the altar here of Saint Augustine." He said, "Sure." So <laughs> got it all ready for me. Closed the church, left me alone. There I am alone in this church at the altar of St. Augustine and offered mass on the altar of his tomb. That, oh. that to me, was a highlight. You know, you're, Yes, of course, Augustine is with the Lord, but again, the body, the temple of the Holy Spirit raised to the altars once one is canonized. And so to be in the presence of the mortal remains of one honored by the church as doctor and as holy and to be able to offer the Eucharist on that altar, that was, that was a highlight. Wow. And so that's where all of his remains are, this small town? or. Uh, Believe so. Yeah. Yeah. Believe so. yeah. Fact check. Our producer, fact check, fact check us. <laughs> yeah, I'll get on that. Where are Augustine's remains? Yeah. But, oh yeah, so the point of St. Ambrose, um, what I thought was interesting was that he, you know, already was an established preacher and someone of, of notable influence in the church. And he's also a doctor of the church. Mm-hmm. So you have this friendship or this interaction between men who both became doctors yeah. of the church and perhaps... I don't know, you know more of the story than I do, but St. Ambrose, perhaps without his witness, Augustine would not have been who he is today or, or who he became. There was, did I talk about this in the last podcast? There was, when I, when I met with the Benedictine nuns well, at Kyle, when I met with the Benedictine nuns at Kylemore Abbey there in Ireland, uh, talking about the providential way it came together that I was there to say Mass on a day when the nuns didn't have their chaplain. And one of the uh, older sisters says, well, you know, the Lord arranges all things without error. And so I think we see that exemplified in this encounter between Ambrose and Augustine. This was all part of uh, Providence's design for Augustine's conversion, bringing him into a relationship, bringing him into dialogue, into an encounter with St. Ambrose and to hear his preaching. Now, later on in the Confessions, it talks about a particular moment when the penny dropped and everything all came together for Augustine. The, Am- the teaching of Ambrose, together with his own reflections and so on, was all part of that journey leading up to the moment when it all became clear for Augustine. Are there any other even heretical counterparts to Augustine that stand out to you, or even a, 
a theology, a, a different theological argument that comes in tension with what Augustine said that stands well, out in to the, you? In the time of Augustine, one of his great battles was with the Donatists. Now, okay. Now this, this comes out of the time when you know, the church had been under great, great persecution, and people um, that kind of abandoned the church under persecution um, and then later came back, including priests. You know, a lot of people would say, well, you know, um, this this priest, he abandoned the faith, and now he's coming back, and I don't think uh, I can be baptized or I can uh, have any sacrament celebrated by this sinner, this terrible sinner who betrayed the church, betrayed Christ. Look at all these people who gave their lives and these people ran away and now they're back. And so what they were doing was linking the effectiveness of the sacrament with the personal worthiness of the minister. That's what Donatism taught? Yeah. And so Augustine is saying, no, 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 no. Oh. Christ is the minister of every sacrament working through, yes, admittedly very unworthy instruments, i.e. the ordained priest. And so even if the priest himself, you know, has sinned, um, that does not stand in the way of the effectiveness of the sacrament because Christ is ultimately the minister working through. Mm-hmm. Right? And so that went back and forth uh, quite a little bit, but it was, certainly, it was certainly the position of Augustine that prevailed in the history of the church where uh, the efficacy of the sacraments in no way depend upon the personal worthiness of the minister. Well, it's certainly relevant in a lot of cultural discussion right now. You bet, you bet, you know, and for, for every priest, you know, who, who are, I mean, well, we're all sinners and we all grapple in one way or another with, with, with that reality. And that, and that becomes very, very consoling knowing that, um, yes, I place myself at the disposition of Christ and, um, even my personal unworthiness is not going to get in the way mm-hmm. of what Christ wants to accomplish by his grace in the life of the recipient of the sacrament. So with Augustine, especially um, for anyone who's new to hearing about Augustine and his impact on the church, um, how would you say in closing how Augustine really speaks to our present state of the world right now and our, our archdiocesan community as we're experiencing it in 2022. How does Augustine speak into our lives as Catholics now? There's many ways for sure, but what would be one way that you would say his wisdom, his testimony can edify us in the present? I think Augustine continually calls us not to be afraid to enter into serious Mm -hmm. self-examination. And self-examination in the light of Scripture in the light of the teaching of the church. Allow the word of God, allow the teaching of the church to interrogate us, to challenge us. Um, and, 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 and do that, obviously, in the context of prayer, allowing grace to transform our lives. Um, Augustine is a call uh, to humility, to recognize our weakness and our limit, to recognize our capacity for sin, or, and yes, our capacity for serious sin, and to live from the truth. And it's, it's, it's a joyful acceptance, really, to live from the truth that we exist and we thrive solely by God's gift, and to surrender each day for the, to that. And make that prayer of Augustine our own. So every every disciple is called to follow the Lord and has a, has a, has a God-given purpose. So every day, Lord, 
Give me the grace to do what you command. Command me to do what you will. In Latin, how does it go? Da quad ubes, ube quad vis. Beautiful. Amen. Well, thank you, Grace, for this discussion. You're welcome. Yeah. Welcome. Delighted. And thank you to everyone who is tuning in. Uh, thank you for being here. And be sure to join us next week for another episode of Upfront with the Archbishop. <laughs>